Hi, Stefan. Good to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. So um, for everybody who doesn't know you, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. I was uh, born in Ireland. I grew up in England. I was moved in the 70s with my family to Canada. And um, I've studied uh, English and history and theater. I have a graduate degree on the history of philosophy from the University of Toronto. And then afterwards, I got into the software field. I'd sort of been programming since I was in my early to mid-teens. And um, I started, co-founded a software company and grew it. And the company was environmental software to help big corporations and armies and so on reduce waste and emissions. And sold the company, stayed in the software field for a while, and then I just began podcasting from my car. I had a long commute, just strapped on a mic, and uh, I've been studying philosophy, of course, since my mid-teens. And I guess it had all kind of built up like a reservoir in my brain. And I just started talking about it, and people started donating. And I quit uh, a bus about, oh, Lord... I'm going back here. Like 13 or 14 years ago, I quit my career to start yelling reason and evidence at the world full-time. And since then, uh, it's grown enormously. I've spoken uh, all over the world. I have, I think, a dozen books. Uh, I have had more than half a billion views and downloads of my show. And uh, I have pleased all the right people and annoyed all the right people. So uh, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I'm doing all right. <laughs> Amazing. So um, before we talk about like everything you are doing currently, um, could you please tell us a bit about like how you grew up and how your childhood looked like? Oh, okay. Um, well, uh, it was not good. Uh, it was not a good childhood. Uh, my parents separated when I was very young. My father uh, is a geologist and went to live in Africa because in Ireland and England, well, there's not a lot of gold mining. Uh, and so um, I grew up in a single mother household. Uh, my mother was uh, unstable and, and violent and ended up being institutionalized for a time. And I sort of began making my, got my first job when I was 10. And I kind of began making my own way in the world uh, at about the age of 15. I started paying sort of my, my own bills, put myself through college and all of that. So oh, sorry, it was... Up, but, 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 but what were you doing? Like what were your kind of, uh, your first jobs? Oh, my f so my first job was painting plaques for the Queen's Jubilee, which, uh, you know, the, I think it was the 25th anniversary of, of Queen Elizabeth's reign or something like that. It was in the 70s. And uh, I, was, I would paint the plaques, which would then be sold in stores. And then when I came to Canada, I got a job at a bookstore assembling newspapers, which, funnily enough, uh, I, I got my first one of my, my first job with a paycheck was as, uh, assembling newspapers at a bookstore. And now I disassemble newspapers for a living uh, as, as a philosopher. So it's kind of full circle. And, um, uh, oh, gosh, where did I, I worked as a, a maid, so to speak. I cleaned offices. Uh, I, I cleaned dog hair off people's carpets. Uh, I, uh, I was a mover. Uh, I um, was a waiter for, for quite a couple of years. I was a gold panner and prospector in northern Ontario. And, you know, I kind of put all that aside after a while and started working in offices because, well, there are just fewer bugs and, and less sunburn. <laughs> so um, before we talk about your 20s and, and, and what we were studying back then, um, you said you had like a rough childhood. So um, how did you personally uh, handle like the situation at home and with your mother and stuff right. like that? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of bad childhoods, right? So there are childhoods where you're neglected. Those are actually the worst of all. I think neglect is, is one, I mean, outside of sort of out, outright sexual abuse and, you know, to the death, physical abuse. Yeah. Neglect is bad. I, I wasn't really neglected. My mother uh, has uh, an extraordinary 
temper, and she's German, uh, and uh, she grew mm-hmm. up in the Second World War. So, of course, it was bad where she was. Her childhood was, you know, watching Germany being, you know, sky bombed by the Allies from here to eternity. So she had it really rough growing up. And I think that left a real shadow, you know, like these wars, they, they never end when they end, right? You know, there's these long shadows that are cast intergenerationally. Uh, on my father's side, there were lots of uh, uh, his um, uh, male relatives died in the First World War, died in the Second World War. So uh, I'm sort of the product of the tangled wreckage of 20th century European wars. And my mother was very much a talker. I don't know what it's called, logorrhea, like sort of verbal diarrhea. And I'm, I'm aware I have thousands of shows out there, but I do a lot of listening too. So, but she would sort of uh, just corner me and tell me all about her dating life and other things that were, you know, entirely inappropriate. And you know, so so I grew up facing, you know, violence. She had an explosive temper, and facing this just onslaught of I don't know what you would call it now. There's a phrase like back when we were kids, like um, a flaky, or some people call it woo woo. You know where. There's psychic energy all over the universe, and where we are is not really where we are. There are higher realms. Nothing is organized as heaven or hell or nirvana or, I guess, the um, uh, Kantian term for the new Amina but, or Plato's forms. But there's this other world that's out there that's much more important than this world, which is merely a pale reflection of that world. And my mother was a you know, determined passport holder of this other world. And would constantly talk to me about, you know, psychic phenomenon. And it was the 70s as well, in the 80s, where there was a lot of, you know, kind of woo-woo, pyramids will sharpen your razor blades and UFOs and all this kind of stuff. Although UFOs aren't insane because they are at least physically possible. So having had this anti-rational, anti-empirical wall of language coming from my mom, I became kind of a ninja at disassembling bullcrap. Uh, because, you you know, to hold on to your sanity in the face of all these crazy words coming your way, you have to really, you know, kind of, you got to plant your, you know, like, like you're a guy trying to stop a horse with his bare hands. You've got to plant yourself uh, deep into the world. You've got to figure out how to hang on to your reason and your commitment to reality. And so she taught me a lot about philosophy in an odd kind of way. And I won't say that I'm thankful for it, but I will say that I appreciate the muscles that I developed as a child because, you know, the world's getting a little nutty these days. I guess it always has been, but it seems to be escalating. And I feel like I've been fairly well prepared to combat the anti-rational ideas in the world because of how I was raised. Mm. Um, I love that you're sharing your story so openly with us. So, um, like, what would you tell our listeners? Because we have also like a lot of very, very young listeners who are currently listening to this podcast. Like, what would you tell them? Like, what would be your best advice for everyone who's like struggling with their relationships with their parents? And I think it goes even for people who are like in their 30s and 40s who have like a bad relationship with their parents. Like, what would you tell them? Like, yeah, what would be your best advice for everyone? That's a, that's a big topic, man. I, I love these questions. It's great. Um, okay, so most because you have the personal experience, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, I've I've wrestled with with parental relationships and family relationships for quite a long time. So I'm going to give a big picture thing, and it sounds like I'm avoiding the personal, but I'm not. I just want to give people the big p- okay. picture perspective because you know I'm just some guy in Canada, and I want people to sort of get the ideas. <laughs> so we are not a philosophical society. And, and philosophy is one of these rare eruptions that happen 
in the world. You know, it happened in, in uh, England uh, a couple of hundred years ago. It happened in Greece 2,500 years ago. Uh, it kind of erupts, and it's almost, you know, like with a candle. You lick your fingers and you put out the candle. The powers that be move very quickly against philosophy. So the question is, how are ideas transmitted in society? Well, the way that ideas are transmitted in society is not through reason and evidence. The way that they're transmitted is kind of an unholy bargain. And the unholy bargain is this. The powers that be say to the parents, this is what you need to teach your children. Now, in return, we will tell your children to love and honor and respect and obey you. Right? So that's the deal. Right? Why should parents be obeyed? Is it because they're wise and they're thoughtful and they're considerate and they're philosophical and they're brilliant or anything like that? Well, no. I mean, most times parents tell you the most uh, abysmal nonsense. But exactly. the deal is we will, uh, society will punish any child who questions the values and virtues of his or her parents. That's kind of the deal, right? So the parent is, is moved to a, a position of central authority in the family which is unearned for the most part. And in return for elevating the parent to this honor thy mother and thy father situation, the parent in return says that society is a great and wonderful thing, that the law is just and good, that the government is necessary and virtuous, and so on, right? And, and even generations like the boomer generation, um, I, I remember, I, mean, I don't know when you, everyone has these sort of stories if, if you know these things. When did you first find out about the national debt? Because I remember that part of my education. When I first ran across the national debt, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> this, this generation of, of elders that I'm supposed to love and respect have sold me into hawk for half a million dollars to foreign banksters so that they can have a welfare and warfare state at the same time? Like, it's a really, it's a deep shock. Because, you know, when you're a kid, you know, what do your parents say? Well, you shouldn't steal. You shouldn't use violence to get your way. You shouldn't push. You shouldn't shove. You shouldn't say mean words, right? So you think, wow, these, these are really upright and honorable and moral, moral people. Exactly. And then what happens is you find out that, that you're in debt because of their greed and cowardice. You're in debt, half a million dollars or a million dollars or more. And you're like, holy crap, you guys are terrible human beings. <laughs> like This is all just lies and, and nonsense and all of that. And then they say, well, you know, you've got to go to school to be educated. And I remember, I'm sure you had the same experience. It's pretty much the same all around the West. School is so boring and so trivial. And actually, it was better when it was trivial. Now I think it's ac actively toxic. But, um, you know, how did schools come about? Well, you know, we, we're going to throw parents in jail or, or even people who don't have kids, if they don't pay the taxes necessary to fund these schools. So when you start to look at all of this, you say, well, you know, there's a lot of predation on the young. A lot of violence is used in society for people to get their way. And they were willing to sell me down the river uh, just for the sake of getting free stuff from the government. So then you, this whole arch begins to collapse, right? And you say, well, why should I respect my elders? Have they respected me? Well, no, they haven't respected me enough to say, no, no, of course we're not going to go into debt and, and, and inflict this giant canyon of unfunded liabilities on the next generation because that would be totally immoral. <laughs> it's like, no, they're like, yeah, no, that's great. And if you question it, well, you're a... I don't know, a fascist or something like that. So, so there's this deal, right? So you get a lot of nonsense from your parents, and then what happens is, in, in, buried in that nonsense is honor thy mother and thy father, and that's kind of a bad deal, right? So we all recognize that if a husband is abusive to his wife, 
then she has the right to not be in the relationship. In fact, most people would say it's good to not be in that relationship, right? Correct. But a wife chooses the husband, right? It, it's chosen. I did not choose my parents. You did not choose your parents. Nobody has chosen their parents. And so why should a woman be encouraged to leave an abusive relationship even though she chose that relationship. She got to take the guy for a test drive. She got to date him. She had probably, if she's reasonably attractive, she had a whole circle of men throwing resources and gonads at her. And then she chose to marry this guy, and then we have a lot of sympathy. Oh, well, you, you made this choice. It was a bad choice. You should get out. But if you don't choose your parents, shouldn't you also have the right and be encouraged, if necessary, to, to leave them if they are abusive, right? But that's not how society works. Right? Because if the relationship between adult child and parent becomes voluntary, then the deal that society makes with parents, tell children all this nonsense and in return will <laughs> tell children to, to love, worship and obey you no matter what, that whole deal breaks down. So when I start talking about the voluntary relationship to parents, hey, if your parents are great people, I mean, I'm, I'm a father, if your parents are great people, they've earned your love, your respect and your, your um, uh, allegiance because they're great people, but virtue is an action that is chosen, and the rewards of virtue should not be withheld. If someone's virtue, you should give them respect, and if someone's uh, uh, immoral or, or neutral, then you should not. And so from a philosophical standpoint, we look at the intergenerational relationships, and we say that simply procreating does not make you moral. And if people have been abused by their parents, I my my advice is always the same. You know, sit down and talk about it with them. And it, you know, if necessary, talk to a counselor, get into family counseling, try and heal things. But if they're unrepentant, if they're negative and destructive and abusive, you don't have to be in that relationship. Because once you move things from a coercive to a voluntary situation, they always improve. They always, always, always improve, right? So, I mean, just think of, to take a ridiculous example, right? I mean, whatever... The government runs is, is, is terrible. I mean, it's terrible, right? I mean, the difference between... Um, I saw this show the other day where a guy was talking about having to go renew his driver's license, right? So he drives up to the bureaucrat office where he has to, I guess, Department of Motor Vehicles or whoever, and all of the good parking spots are reserved for their employees, <laughs> right? But you, you go to a, a, a Best Buy or I don't know where, what there is, where you are, you go some some store... Um, that the, the employees are told to park as far away as humanly possible and, and make sure that all the good parking spots are for, for the customers, right? <laughs> yeah. because, so whatever the government runs is terrible because it's coercive. There's no competition. There's no risk of loss and so on. To improve parenting, parenting needs to become a voluntary relationship when the kids are adults, right? Because if we kind of have a cultural monopoly that is enforced through uh, bullying and, and social ostracism and, and attacks for anyone who questions the automatic virtue of an adult-child-parent relationship, to make the parent-child relationship voluntary when the child has grown up means that there are consequences to being a bad parent, which is your children might not see you. Like, you know, we can't, much though we would love to, we can't reach into every household and make parents be better, like make them not hit their children, not yell at their children, not abuse their children, not neglect their children, not call their children names. I mean, I can't do that any more than I can go into some uh, post office run by the government 
and tell everyone to just start working harder and, and being more efficient and caring for the customers. You can't do that. All you can do is move something from a coercive monopoly to a free market situation. I want to do that with the family because that's the best way for parenting to improve. Great advice. I, I, I love your insights. So um, basically what you're trying to say is that if you're stuck in a toxic and bad relationship, talk to the people, try to negotiate, try to make things better. And if nothing is improving, um, cut them out of your life. Well, listen, your life is, is yours to build and your relationship. If you have toxic people in your life, that defines every other relationship that you have. And I say this to people who call in to my show to talk about these things. It's very, very important, right? So when I did not have a toxic and abusive mother in my life, by golly, I met a wonderful woman. I got married. I've been married for close to 20 years. I'm, I'm, you know, we're going to go the distance, uh, and, and it's a delight every day to spend time with her. Now, if I did have a toxic and abusive mother in my life, and I said to my then girlfriend, hey, let's go meet my mom, <laughs> right? What's she going to do? <laughs> she's going she's gonna, to, I can't speak for her, but I would imagine that she's going to be like, oh, oh, this is going to be my mother-in-law? This, this is the environment that's going to be around my kids. This is, this is the kind of, and who, would, who would, and who would I be? Right? So it's not just about the past and it's not just about your parents. If you have low quality, abusive people in your life who regularly degrade you, then it keeps, it's like this moat, this fiery alligator filled moat. Actually, that's not really great because the fire would kill the alligators. Okay. Some better analogy there. It's, it's just, they, they keep, bad people keep good people away from you. And so if you have bad people in your life who are unreformed and, and won't change and just put you down, right. it affects right. your career, right? It, it, because how can you have enthusiasm and a sense of personal power and authority? And, and how can you be a leader if every weekend you're going to be put down by your family of origin or whatever? You can't be, have a successful career. You can't have quality friendships because your friends are going to be like, you know, every time you see your mom, you come out like it's like your soul has been scooped out like, you know, a vanilla bean from hell. And you can't have quality dating relationships because you, you're just not the same when you're around abusive people. And uh, particularly women, when they date you, they're scanning for what the rest of their lives are going to look like. You know, because, you know, we're men, right? So when we date, it's like, hey, she's pretty. <laughs> you know? And, and that's where we kind of uh, uh, operate from. But women are like sussing out, uh, okay, well, that would be my mother-in-law, and this person would be yeah. taking care of my future kids, <laughs> and is he going to make enough money for me to stay home and raise the kids if I want? She's, she's like sending her tentacles of, of possibility all she's the way through the future. And so if you want a quality woman, you, you can't have people who put you down because she's going to lose respect for you. Yeah, great, great point, Um I, I will uh, take this moment to say, Mom, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> you. You had a good mom? Yeah, I love my mom. <laughs> good. You know what? I love her too. Thank you. Thank you for being a good mom. It's lovely to see. <laughs> so um, let's switch gears a little bit. So um, let's speak about your 20s. So um, yeah, let's just, just continue. So um, share the story with us behind your 20s. My training? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was just thinking about this the other day. Just how many odd things came together to coalesce into the magic of me, so to speak, right? Which is, I mean, I have theater training, so I'm comfortable, like sort of connected with my emotions. And I had, 
years of voice training so I can use my voice uh, and not have it get tired. I have flexibility, not massively at the moment. I'm just getting over a bit of a cold, but I have a, a strong voice for these kinds of things. Um, and so the theater training was very helpful. Uh, even down to in theater training, we did lots of improv classes where you're just kind of batting around things as they happen, which happens a lot. It gives me nimbleness of, of mind and execution. When I was in... Um, University, I did a lot of debating, right? I, I sort of just said, hey, I've always, I've always liked debating. My friends and I debated like abortion and the death penalty from when we were like in our, I think 14 or 15, we were just going at it uh, about ideas all the time. And very first, uh, within the first couple of months, I placed sixth in all of Canada, traveled all over doing debates and really, really enjoyed it. And uh, I, did st- I started off in English literature, but then I started acting and then I went to theater school. And then I didn't really want to finish in English literature because I kind of had the feeling, I think it was more than a feeling, I kind of had the thought, I don't like a discipline where you can't be wrong. So I'm kind of convincing, uh, and I have to make sure I use that for the power of good. You know, I mean, eye contact <laughs> and, and charisma and positive attitude and so on. And so I was pretty good at, you know, oh, you've read this book. Okay, write me something about this book. And I'd write something, people are like, whoa, that's deep or that's good. And it's like, yeah, but how do I know if it's right? You know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, just somewhat convincing. So I switched over to history because I wanted something where I could actually be wrong and, and where there was more research and so on. So I did an undergraduate in history at McGill uh, and I continued to act uh, as well. And then uh, I took a year off uh, and, and worked and then I finished up uh, at McGill, uh, sorry, at University of Toronto. And I was thinking of going on to academia as a whole, but you know, it wasn't that hard to see that the future of white males in academia was not super shiny, you know, because there was a lot of diversity hiring and female hiring that was going on. And also, boy, you know, it takes a long time to get a PhD, and then it takes a long time to get a tenure track position, and then it takes a long time to get tenure. And I'm like, man, I don't know if I can wait till I'm 40 to get a steady paycheck. You know, that's 30 years after I got my first job, I'm finally getting a steady paycheck. That's, that just did not that's seem... That's not too good. Yeah. yeah, that's just not... And also, you know, as well, dating, right? I mean, it's tough for a woman to settle down with a guy who doesn't even have a steady paycheck yet. And I'm like, you know, so, so I ended up bailing out into the business world, which uh, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And so in the business world, I did a lot of presentations. I did a lot of sales. I did a lot of negotiation and so on. And I was a manager. Uh, the company grew to, I think, 25 or 30 people or so. And, and it's still in business now, actually, which I'm, I'm very, very happy about. But... Um, all of that uh, leadership and presentation and communication uh, and negotiation, I think, all helped in terms of bringing this coalescing, coalescing together. So, yeah, my mom teaching me how to be rational by plying me with anti-rationality for like 15 years straight. Uh, theater training, improv training, emotional training. I did years of talk therapy, which also helped me understand how I tick and how people tick as a whole and, and how important dreams are in the unconscious and instincts and and it also gave me a great respect for you know on my call-in shows and I say to people why do you do this and they say I don't know and I know for sure that they do right so (laughs) nobody can pull the I don't know card with me and I just say yeah you do and and you know then they're like oh yeah okay it's this and so I think a lot of that therapy uh, was hugely helpful uh, in in helping me understand what what makes people tick and motivate and so I think that stuff all kind of came together. Plus, you know, because I'm technical and came from a you know, computer programming background, um, you know, I, I have enough technical expertise to run the show, right? I mean, I, I did the websites and did coding there. And so I didn't have to outsource a whole bunch, which allowed me to pour more money into growing the show, which I think helped a lot. <laughs> 
So um, before we talk about the show, um, your books, Philosophy, Freedom Radio, um, because a lot of entrepreneurs are also listening to this podcast and you have so much business knowledge and business experience, um, I would love to, to, to hear your like best advice for everyone who's currently listening, who tries to make some, ha has some side hustle, try to get something going, maybe wants to scale their current business, like Give us like the framework or, or, or your big picture business advice. So right, right. What would you tell them? Well, I mean, so there's the technical content, which of course I won't address because that's each person's to develop. I happen to have coding skills and communication skills. So that's a rare combo to be able to yeah. code a computer and also explain it in layman's terms exactly what's happening to, uh, to people who would buy the software. And yeah, I mean, I was in VAR software sold. Uh, we, the, first, the first system sold for $5,000. And then they were selling for well over a million U.S. Uh, all in towards the end. So you've got to have some kind of skills overlap. And so for me, having this combination of leadership skills, to I was the chief technical officer, so I ran the software department, which was most of the software company. So having leadership skills, having coding skills so that I know what's going on and actually built the core code of most of the system, and having communication skills. So everyone has stuff that comes easily to them. And for me, that was just coding and all of that. And then there's stuff that was tougher to develop and learn. Everybody wants to focus on the stuff that's easy for them, and they want to avoid the stuff that's tougher to learn. So for me, getting up and doing sales presentations, <laughs> I remember one of the first ones I did to a bank. This is way back in the 90s. I was, I was standing there, and I was presenting, and I was doing a pretty good job of presenting how good the software was. And then they started asking questions, right? And I'm standing there, <laughs> I'm standing there up at the whiteboard, and I have no idea whether to sit down or not. Like, it's just little things like that. Like, I don't know. Do I sit down? <laughs> right? And so, because I don't know if I sit down, is that considered rude? Are they going to ask me to, to more questions about what's on the whiteboard or whatever? And I remember my business partner <laughs> wrote on a piece of paper <laughs> and turned and pushed it to me. Sit down, man. Sit down. <laughs> like big letters, like sit down, right? And so I'm like, oh, I think I'll sit down, right? So just... That, that stuff did not come particularly easy to me, and I kind of had to go against the grain in terms of just, just learn to master the things that don't come easily. Because then you will outcompete anyone who goes with what comes easily. Because if I just stayed on the coding, then I wouldn't have been as good a leader. I wouldn't have been as good at marketing and sales. Like I moved from coding, uh, then I got a job in, in, in marketing software because... I'd already had that experience, and then I worked with salespeople and all that. So there's stuff that comes really naturally for you, and that's great. You know, people should really in, in, enjoy that. But then if you can overlap skills over that, which don't come as easy, and you're willing to just go out and learn and, and feel like a dumb uh, person and, and not know what you're doing, then when you get good at a bunch of different things, you're really hard to beat in, in that. And that really is the basic entrepreneurial thing. And so... I would say learning, I mean, the only thing I didn't learn in business was the tax code, just because it's too depressing and, and boring. But just about every other business, aspect of business, and even the stuff that I didn't like that much, I just went in and, and learned how to do it. And, and so for me, the entrepreneurial side is, yeah, you got stuff you're good at. Really focus on the stuff that doesn't come easy, that adds a lot of value, and you'll be completely unbeatable. That's the first thing. The second thing is that you have to love the effect of what you're doing on the world. You can't go and be an entrepreneur with this dumb thing of, I just want to make money. It's like, that's not going to be motivating enough because you're going to have to work crazy hours. You're going to have to devote years of your life to, to building something. So you have to love 
the effect of what you're doing in the world. So with philosophy, it's easy. You know, like I get emails all the time from people that are like, hey man, your show turned my life around. Hey, I wasn't going to have kids. You talked to me about how wonderful parenting is. Here's a picture of my twins. You know, like stuff that just like feeds you <laughs> and fills you up with joy and happiness. I love the effect. And when people write to me and say, uh, you're, the, you're the worst human being in the world uh, and, and I disagree with everything you say. And, uh, you know, that's great too because it means that they found me. I'm challenging them. They don't like what I'm saying. Maybe they've good, good arguments can change my mind or maybe they're just a bad person who doesn't like that I'm talking reason, right? Probably, yeah. So you have to love the effect of what you're making in the world. And for me, putting my computer and coding skills into making the world cleaner for the next generation, you know, like uh, helping companies to, to let less pollution into the groundwater, into the earth, into the air. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good way to spend a decade of, of your life is helping companies clean up the world. That's great. So loving the effect, because if you don't love the effect of what you're making in the world, it'll be very easy to be stopped, right? Because the, the entrepreneurial life is like, okay, what's going to stop you? Well, it's going to be fear, it's going to be boredom, it's going to be uh, just general pushback. So what is it that motivates you? What is it that motivates you? Well, you know, uh, if, if your car is rolling off a cliff, you're motivated to run pretty fast to jump into it, to, to stop it, right? So that's your desire, right? Uh, uh, or if you're being chased by a bear uh, to, to your house, uh, you have a pretty good motivation to, to run as fast as you can. Otherwise, you're going to be some bear helmet uh, in about 30 seconds, right? So a desire and, and the accompanying fear, right? Whenever we have desire, we automatically have the fear of not achieving that desire, right? The more you want the girl to go out with you, the more nervous you are to ask her out. Or right? boredom them with them. With yeah, them yeah. Here, that's, right? I mean, so, so recognizing that with great <laughs> desire comes great fear. Is it, yeah. you know you, you everybody wants the desire nobody wants the fear they're two you can't have the two like once I quit my job and I, I'm like I really really want this to succeed and yeah. I was very very scared that it wouldn't succeed because I, not just for me but you know I know the world needs philosophy and it's it's kind of important to 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 get that done so love the effect of what you're doing in the world and then it's not about you right so you know when you wake up and you feel tired or you've got a headache or whatever it is right. So everyone has that. So for me, I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I may not feel that great today, but you know, I'm going to have a conversation with a great person like yourself. We're going to talk about ideas and philosophy, and that's going to be good for the world and, and fun for me, and I'm really enjoying this. And that way, it's not just about how you feel. It's about the effects that you have in the world. So I could say, well, I don't really want to work on this part of the software. It's kind of dull. And it's like, yeah, but it is going to stop 100,000 tons of volatile organic chemicals from being pumped into the air if it works. It's like, okay, then it's not just about me. It's about can people breathe downwind of this particular manufacturing plant or whatever, right? So if you yeah. make it about the effect you're having on the world, that gives you the momentum to get over the inevitable obstacles that are going to try and, and stop you. So forget about the money, uh, forget about the immediate work, and almost like forget about your localized fleeting feelings and use this grappling hook of your effect on the world and the good that you can do. And it doesn't, have, see, it doesn't even have to, like, let's say you're running a coffee shop, right? Okay, well, a coffee shop is where people can come and have great conversations. Uh, a coffee shop is where people can come to work and you can teach them about uh, business and, and you can provide a very positive work environment. It doesn't have to be something earth-shattering, life-changing and so on. 
because you can create a haven for people to have a great conversation. You can create a place where people can learn more about uh, business and, and so on. And you can start to train the young generation who are going to come and work for you and to be future entrepreneurs. There's lots of great things that you can do uh, in, in, in anything that you do. But if you make it about something more than the money, you make it about something more than the immediate work and what you have to do in the moment and have a larger sense of your impact on the world, that's going to give you such an edge. Because you know what it's like. Most people, they start and they stop. Right. Say, well, I'm really, really keen on this. And then they lose interest a day or two later. Or, or one month they're trying. Or two yeah, yeah. Months, and so those there. people will stop. So how do you keep going? You keep going because you love the effect that you have in the world. And the last thing that I'll say is for when all of that fails, make it too dangerous to fail. <laughs> so when I was in the entrepreneurial world, as you know, in the business world, cash flow is king. It doesn't matter if you're getting paid next month if you've got to pay your employees this month. And so I remember very clearly signing a promissory note for $10,000. Well, that's a lot of money. But when you're in your 20s and right out of school, that's a lot of money. And I had to sign that so that we'd get bridge financing to make payroll. And that's alarming because if we hadn't made payroll and gone out of business, like sometimes it comes down to this is back before, I think before we even got stuff through, we were watching the facts, you know, sit there watching the facts. And, and is the order going to come through? We're going to be able to make it, right? So then it becomes you've invested so much, you're on the hook for $10,000, so you can't fail. <laughs> Right, you, you, you can't. You can't. So no plan B. Yeah, yeah no, no plan B. And and so going all in is a really, really great way to to not falter. Right. So when I first uh, quit my job, um, and and started doing this, I mean, a whole bunch of reporters were saying I was the worst guy in the known universe, and so on. It's like, okay, well, see, they actually kind of did me a favor, right? Because because <laughs> because it's like, okay, I can't quit now because. That's all over Google, and so if I go to try and get a job, people are going to Google me, and okay, so now I'm all in, right? And, and being all in is a really, really great place to be because the people who, you know, who, who's going to win the swimming race? The guy who dives in, not the guy who's like, ooh, that's kind of chilly on my toe. Maybe I'll put my elbow in. Yeah. Maybe I'll just take a while to, to acclimatize, to the, you know, just dive in and start swimming, and you're automatically, like, way ahead of everyone else. So I think, you know, make sure you work on the skills that don't come easy. Make sure yeah. that you love the effect of what you're doing on the world and take risks to the point where backing out is not an option. That won't guarantee your success, but it will guarantee that you're 99% uh, further ahead than everyone else. <laughs> um, I really love your advice. This episode is loaded with goodness. So um, <laughs> could you please continue your story? Like what were you doing after you sold the, uh, uh, or after you, you have finished this whole software company thing? So what were you doing then and, and transition into what you are doing now? And uh, yep. Yes. Well, uh, I guess this is another little corner of, of, of my life. So uh, I wrote my first short story when I was six years old. And then I started writing a novel when I was 11, a science fiction novel called By the Light of an Alien Sun. And then I, this is when I went to theater school, I studied playwriting fu fundamentally. Like I did, the, I took a year of acting and then I studied playwriting. I wrote uh, poems. I wrote about 30 plays. I've written, I think, five or six novels. And so for me, after I finished uh, in, in the business world, uh, or after, yeah, after I, I quit in the business world, I didn't go straight into um, this uh, show uh, because before 
um, there was sort of a gap, right? So I, I sold the company uh, and, and stayed on for a while and then uh, wanted to do something else. And then I took a year off and I took a, a very prestigious writing course and I wrote a novel called The God of Atheists, which I'm very, very happy with and, and, and proud of. And I, had, I was working with some writers to sort of improve it and polish it. I got an agent. And so for me, I had no real ideas of philosophy. I mean, I, there's philosophy in the novel, but I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a novelist. I wanted to be a playwright or maybe a scriptwriter or whatever it was. And I got fantastic reviews on the book for a variety of reasons. It never uh, got anywhere, although I've certainly sold it since. But um, So I was uh, really aiming at the art world. And I could not gain any traction in the art world. Now, in general, I understand it now that the art world is very left-leaning. It's generally pro-socialist and pro-communist. And I'm an ardent capitalist and free market guy. And they can kind of smell that coming down the hallway. You know, like in the zombie movies where somebody's like, hey, what smell bad? What smells bad? And some green guy comes through the wall. It's like they can, I smell free market from this guy. I smell voluntarism and reasonableness and so on. And so I was not um, able to, to get that going, although I was quite convinced it was going to go very well because of the amazing reviews I got in my book. I was actually one guy with a PhD in literature called it the first great Canadian novel. And, but um, So then, of course, when you realize that art is, is an effect, like art is a shadow cast by philosophy. And if the philosophical principles in your society are wrong, and not just wrong, but anti-rational, then you can't succeed as an artist when everyone believes the wrong thing, the wrong things to begin with. So then I was like, okay, fine, fine, you know, I can't, I'm not going to be an actor, I'm not going to be a playwright, I'm not going to be a novelist. I guess I'll, you know, you kind of get backed into fine, you know, because I couldn't see a path in terms of like, how do you, how do you make philosophy pay? It's, it's, it's kind of a tough question. Right? I mean, it's a big Back in the day, it's a very tough question, right? So that was not, you know, if I sell the novel, okay, I can maybe get made into a movie, okay, I can make some coin that way. In the business world, it's easy, right? You get stock options, you get ownership and all that kind of good stuff. But philosophy was a little tougher to to imagine how to monetize, right? Uh, And so I, very early on, you know, went, went to the business model of Socrates, which is, okay, I'm not gonna charge you for lessons, but if you like what I have to say, maybe you'll buy me lunch, right? That, that was the entire <laughs> business model of Socrates, right? And so when people started donating, they said, oh, man, you should take ads. And I got lots of offers for ads because I was one of the first. I was like user number three on YouTube. And I was one of the first podcasts uh, out there in 2005, 2006, way back in the day. And people were like, wow, you know, you're really ahead of the pack. You're getting some really good yeah. listenership and, and all of that. We got to, you know, we want to advertise. In your, and I was like, ah. If I, if I take ads, I have a single point of weakness for people to push back against what I'm saying. Whereas if I have a decentralized funding model, which is why I only take donations on the show, if I have a decentralized funding model, then I'm not going to have to be concerned about an advertiser's reaction to what I'm saying. Or if people don't like what I'm saying, they can't just contact an advertiser and say, you got to pull, right? Because what's that, how they attack people in general, like the left attacks they try to destroy your reputation and tax your source of income, right? My reputation is whatever, right? Whatever it's going to be. But the source of income is different. So I studiously avoided monetizing uh, ads or, or sponsorships or, or, or even big ticket donations from think tanks that influence what I was doing. 
because I want my relationship to be with the audience, right? I, if they're paying the bills, then I'm focused. There's no third party, right? Because yeah. I, I don't want to be, I want to be in the business of delivering philosophy to the world. I don't want to be in the business of delivering the world to an advertiser through philosophy. That's just an, a complicated and, and not direct relationship. So that was a very early decision, which I think events have kind of proven that to be, you know, a good decision because what do the people who dislike arguments, they just try and get you demonetized and, and all of that and you can't run ads. And, and so because I never took that approach, it was way uh, easier to stay on the straight and narrow path of truth. <laughs> so um, what are the topics, the, the philosophy topics that are fascinating you today? So um, Today, just today, today. Oh. Because... Yeah, you, you, you have studied philosophy for so, so many decades. So I would love to hear, like, um, what gets you going today. So, yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny, Hardy, because I've always been an ethics guy, right? So, so to me, when you're looking at a discipline, you have to say what distinguishes it from everything else. Like, how is a nutritionist different from a doctor? Well, a doctor deals with general ailments and so on and generally deals with the effects of illness a nutritionist deals with, you know, the food and, and liquid that you put in your body and with the hopes, of course, of preventing illness. So for me, what is it that distinguishes philosophy from other disciplines? So philosophy has sort of four general categories, right? The first is metaphysics, which is the study of the nature of reality, right? Do we live in a sort of, you know, tap your table empirical universe? Is there a higher universe that we are simply a shadow or a reflection of? What is the relationship between the senses and knowledge? is epistemology, right? So you got the study of the nature of reality, and then you have epistemology, which is how do we know things are true or false? And then you have uh, ethics, which is how do we know what is right and wrong, moral and immoral? And then we have politics, which is the implementation of, how does the implementation of coercion affect society as politics is generally coercion? So for me, I sort of had to say, okay, well, why, what is philosophy? Like, why is it different? Okay, is it different because it studies the nature of reality? Well, no. No, because physics does that. And um, the science as a whole does that. So I think that philosophy can help inform scientists, but scientists don't have a plan B called another dimension means it's true, right? They have to describe this reality, this world. When it comes to epistemology, the study of knowledge, well, science can achieve knowledge of things without being philosophical, and so it can't be that. There is already a field which studies politics, and so to me, it had to be ethics right? That that is the purpose, right? Now, there's a lot that goes into focusing on ethics, just as there's a lot of science that goes into what you put into your mouth, chew, and swallow, right? But the nutritionist's goal is what? Is, is to get you to change your eating behavior, right? Your consumption behavior, that's the whole point. All the science, all the training comes down to this or not this, right? Something in your mouth or something like that. That's all it comes down to, right? And so with philosophy, can I convince people to act in a manner that has more integrity, that has more honesty? That Can I convince them to, to fight evil and, and support virtue and, and challenge uh, anti-rationality? Because it, it really comes down to just that choice. You know, can I get people to stop saying I love you to evil people or immoral people or people who aren't worthy of the term love? Love has to be earned like forgiveness has to be earned. Can I get people to stop subsidizing bad people with time, attention, and money? Can I get them to be honest in their relationships? Can I get them to stand up for what is good? Those are all specific little choices. So for me, 
the stuff I've always loved the most uh, is, is ethics. And uh, one of the first books that I wrote was The Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, because the two traditional answers regarding how we do good in society, the first, of course, comes from religion, which is here are the commandments handed down by God, and you have to follow these commandments, or uh, you don't get into heaven, or you go to hell, or whatever. And the second is, if, if that sort of fails, and, and often in conjunction with that, of course, the second is, this is the law. You have to obey the law, because the law is good, and if you break the law, you're a criminal and you're bad, right? Now, neither of those two arguments are philosophical. The first argument is an argument from spiritual authority, which has its place in theology, but is not specifically philosophical. Well, I mean, and also, in a mono-religious culture, you can have that as an answer. Right? But if you're going to start to say, okay, well, we're going to have Muslims live together with Christians, live together with Buddhists, live together with Sikhs, live together with atheists, then, then the theological argument no longer holds sway. Because if you have a Muslim who says, well, this is virtuous, and you have a Christian who says, no, 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 this is virtuous, and that is bad, how, you can't resolve that because there are theological absolutes handed down by uh, a, a spiritual, omnipotent, omniscient de- being. Right. So when you start to have a multi-religious society you can't rely upon theology as the foundation of your, your ethics. And similarly, when you start to get bigger and bigger government, laws start to get more convoluted, laws start to get um, contradictory uh, sometimes, and so you can't just say, and of course the 20th century was a giant lesson in how evil, what is legal, can, can become. Right? Just look at look, Germany in, in the 1930s, 1940s, you look at Russia from 1917 until uh, the 80s, I mean, it's just horribly immoral stuff. I mean, uh, what happened in, in China with tens of millions of people murdered and starved to death was all legal. Uh, so, so we've lost the belief in law, and we can't rely on theological arguments for virtue in a multi-religious society. So my goal was to bring philosophy to bear on the most challenging problem, which is how do you define ethics and virtue? in the absence of an appeal to authority, either the law or uh, a god. And that was something that I continue to debate and, and continue to, to work on. And that, I think, is, is the biggest challenge that we have to really wrestle with. <laughs> Got it. So, um, Stefan, I think this episode was so, 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 so epic. Um, I really love talking to you today. At the end, I always ask like five very, very short uh, and quick questions. But before I ask those questions, I would love to hear you talk about your book, Essential Philosophy. And um, I know this, this is like, it sounds a, a bit of a woo-woo, but give us like your best life advice. So um, <laughs> No, no, that's have... fine. No, listen, that's, that's, totally, that's a great question. So Essential Philosophy is a very condensed and entertaining journey through the most important philosophical questions, right? So... Is the world that we perceive real? And is it the only world that exists? Right? There's an old argument that goes back to Rene Descartes from centuries ago that it's possible that you and I, my friend, are a brain in a tank with wires coming in matrix style and it's all an illusion being run by a demon. Right? Now, it sounds silly, but there's a lot of people who have this belief to one degree or another. And so I take on that. Do we live in a simulation? That is a very, very important topic. Are our senses valid? Like what we perceive, what we hear and taste, touch and smell, uh, is it valid? Does it produce true knowledge 
within us, right? So we got metaphysics, we got epistemology. Uh, I go into um, a theory of ethics, my ethical theory, universally preferable behavior, uh, to explain that. Also talk about free will versus determinism. It's a very, very important topic. And we don't talk about these things consciously that much anymore, but it shows up all the time, right? So if we say, oh, you know, this, this poor kid who ended up as a criminal, you know, he came from the ghetto. He didn't have a chance. It's like, then you're saying no free will, right? So we, whenever you have, and generally comes from the left, you have this Marxist or, or heavily environmental explanation for human behavior. You know, like your, your class consciousness is determined by your relationship to the means of production. I mean, the language they use is completely crazy, but do we, do we have free will? And how do we know that we have free will? That is something I tackle in the, um, uh, in the book and answer. And then I have a series of platonic uh, dialogues. I just recently did a four-hour presentation on the truth about Plato, which people should, should check out. It's, yeah, you can throw it on in the background. It's not very chart-heavy, as you can imagine. And so uh, that book is, is available. You can get it for free uh, on YouTube. The audio book is free, uh, and um, people should just check it out. It's a really, really uh, great book. I'm very, very happy with it. And it is, you know, it's like 35 years of, of concentrated philosophy put forward, and I think in a very engaging and entertaining manner. So that was the first. The second question was my best life advice for people. Yeah, <laughs> give us like like uh, your best advice on on could could be on anything. Anything. Well, I, I got to tell you, my my first life advice is to visit my dentist and get teeth as nice as yours. That's my very very first <laughs> life, life advice. Secondly. Visit my barber and get that nice haircut. But anyway, um, so t t just tell me a little bit more about your audience because, you know, life advice is different in different stages of life. So where's your oh, demographics? It's kind of like the Joe Rogan podcast. So <laughs> um, we, we had guests from so, so many fields. But I, I would say like a lot of entrepreneurs are listening. A lot of entrepreneurs. Okay. Okay. <sighs> What do you have on your mind? Just, yeah, so uh, my, my best life advice is this. After a bare minimum of resource acquisition, you've got to have a roof over your head, you've got to have a little money in the bank, you've got to have you know, food in your belly. But your listeners are smart enough, I'm sure, that, that they're past those kinds of basics, right? So here's the view from just past the half century. All of the consumption that you experience will pass away. Right, so you may want to go out there and buy a really cool car. You may want to go out there and, 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 and you know, get some fantastic outfit and so on. And, you know, I don't hate consumption. I think it's, it's fine. It's a part of life. But be careful that you don't let your desire for acquisition and consumption overshadow the relationships that you can form in this life. Because that's what's going to sustain you. The... The vanity of youth, which is a wonderful thing, you know, that you can take on the world, that you can do anything. You don't ever lose that. That's a wonderful aspect of things. But you also have to remember that there's a big-ass second half of your life that you need to, to plan for. And all of the, you know, I got the hot girl, I got the promotion, I, I went on this cool vacation and I selfied myself with a koala bear on my shoulder. And, you know, I got a cool car and I've got the, you know, the hippest pad in, in, in town and so on. That's all fine, you know, I wouldn't pursue that stuff in particular. But here's the thing, none of that stuff is going to sustain you in the second half of your life. And there's this giant veil in society that's, that's kept over the second half of your life. So the second half of your life is the part of your life from like 40 to 80 where the cool car you had when you were 25 doesn't, is gone. It's been 
turned into a tiny little dice cube, right? And it's been uh, recycled into someone's blender. That's all gone. You know, the hot date you had, you know, the, the, the hot but crazy girl that you had, the hot mess that you had, you know, she's gone. She's, she's gone somewhere else. She's probably heavily medicated in some rubber room somewhere, right? Or, so, so all of the stuff that, that appeals to your vanity and your sense of cool when you're younger, it's like a devil's bargain. It'll pump up your vanity and make you feel important and special and cool, but it's not building for the second half of your life. Because when you're 40 to 80, that's a long ass time, man. That is a long time. It's longer than your youth because your youth is really 20 to 40, right? Or 18 to 40 or whatever, right? Because you can't really count the first 15 years of your life. I mean, you're just learning how to walk and not crap yourself, right? So 20 to 40 is a short amount of time. And you think, wow, 20 to 40 is a long time. Man, 40 to 80 or 40 to 90 or 40, that's a long time. And it's a time when it's really tough to be cool. You know, like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 53 in a couple of months, right? So I get all these comments on social media like, hey, old man. It's like, well, first of all, I'm technically middle-aged. I'm not a boomer. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. I mean, the fact is that people are actually taking pride in the remarkable accomplishment of having been born later than me. You know, that's not really yeah, an accomplishment to be proud ridiculous. of. You know? Good yeah. job. Your daddy delayed something. Good, good for you. You must be extraordinarily proud, right? So the second half of your life is your relationships, your relationship with your wife, with your husband, your relationship with your, your kids, your, your friendships. These are what matter. Because when you are 50... You know, look at Johnny Depp. I mean, Johnny Depp, about the, you have to ask your parents, you know, if you haven't seen the, the Pirates of the Caribbean shows, but Johnny Depp, when I was growing up, he was like the coolest thing since sliced bread. I mean, you know, he had those Navajo cheekbones. He had that tiny little stash. He had the beautiful hair, a great looking guy and, and very talented. And like, now look at the guy. I mean, he, he looks like a vampire sucked half of the tire juice out of the Michelin man and propped him up on stage with a guitar. I mean, it's not, it's not pretty. <laughs> and, and so it's going to be kind of tough, even for someone like Johnny Depp, to, to, to kind of be cool and, and get the hot chicks. And, you know, you, you see someone driving around in a sports car with, you know, hair plugs and, and a double chin, and it's, it's just kind of sad. This is an Eddie Murphy bit, I think it is, where he's like, you don't want to be that guy in the club who's just a little like, what song are they playing now? I, I can't quite hear it. You know, just kind of looking, looking weathered. and, and, and Great example. Yeah, yeah. So, so like, do, do the cool stuff. I did, you know, I, I, I danced all night. I, I traveled and, and dated lots of girls. And, and that's fine. You know, this, I'm not sort of saying it's going to be, like, going to be a monk until, but, but, but have a thought for what's over the horizon. Like, what's over the horizon? And the horizon when you're young is very short. And that's fine too, right? But have a thought for the second half of your life because there's a lot of misery. Like, this is particularly true for the ladies, right? Ladies got this 12 years of hottie window from like 18 to 30, and they will often burn it up in pursuit of like rock-ribbed alphas who have no interest in, in settling down. And then after they've had their fun and they get into their 30s, they kind of freak out and panic and try and land a guy, but there aren't that many good guys left around. And those who are around, who they would consider dating, want younger women who have less baggage and less history and all of that kind of stuff. So there's one reason why so many women in their, in their 40s in the West are on these antidepressants and, and you know, it's like cat cemetery uh, for their eggs and all that. It's, it's really rough. So for women in particular, man, do not burn up your youth on, on idiot guys who, who are good man candy, uh, but who won't give you your stability and, and family and, and children and so on. 
because, I mean, I tell you, you now, my daughter, I was a bit of a late dad. So my daughter is, is, is 10, she's going to be 11 this year. I mean, she is, she is the youth and, and future of my life, right? So she's going to grow up, she's going to have her own kids, and there's just going to be people all around. You know, when you're young, there are people all around just because you're hip and cool and, and doing stuff and, and out there and so on. But, you know, when you're 55, who's going to be your tribe? Who, you know, your parents will probably be old or, or maybe they'll be dead. A lot of your friends have, have moved away, like your friends from college and all of that. And, and if you're not married and have kids, who is going to be your tribe? Like, we're social animals. We're, we're, we're dogs, not cats. And, and without a social life, without a tribe, without a community... We wither and die. And, and, and like we can still stay alive for another 30 years, but you know, we just, we just die like we're a plant with no roots. And so have a thought for the kind of sustainable relationships that you can build for the second half of your life. Because if, if you make a lot of money and you're 55, do you know why people want to hang out with you? Because you've got a lot of money. It's not because you're, you're some great guy. And, um, and this is, again, particularly true for women. Like once you get past the super hottie stage, Who's going to want to go out with you? Well, uh, it, it gets tougher and tougher to answer. And so when you're young and you have the natural tribe of just youth and time and all of that, you get older, really plan to have that tribe, to have that community around you. And that means foregoing some of the shallow pleasures. You know, that, you know, we all know this. This is from an old Clerks movie, right? There's the hot girl, and then there's the girl who'd be a great wife and mom, right? May not be quite as hot, right? We, yeah, we know this. I, I know what you're talking about. You, you know, right? You know what I'm, exactly what I'm talking about, right? The, the woman who'll throw pl- plates at you but has a great rack versus the woman who'll actually bake you an apple pie and give you a foot rub if your feet are sore, right? So, so we have this devilish temptation of the flesh, and then we have the quality of a human being who we can grow old with. And my big advice, which I wish I'd listened to earlier, is look for quality in your dating relationships, look for quality in your business relationship, look for quality in your friendships, work to maintain your friendships, but not too hard, don't do all the work because otherwise it's a one-sided thing, but really work to build the foundation of the social life and the community and the tribe that you can enjoy. Because we used to get that even through religion, right? So if you grew up as a Christian or Jew or Muslim, you're gonna have that community, but for a lot of people who don't have that anymore, it's gotta be your family, it's gotta be your friendships. So really, really work on that. Uh, stand back from the woman, uh, you know, like you chase after her because she's so hot, she turns into a mirage, you fall off a cliff, you know, like, like settle down with someone who's, who's high quality. That is going to be the foundation, not just of your emotional and psychological success, because loneliness is like cancer. Like loneliness is as bad for you as being a chain smoker. And I'm not just making that up. Like there's data out there that loneliness is, is as bad for you as, as being a heavy smoker in terms of longevity and so on. So just as you wouldn't smoke or, or, or just as you wouldn't, you know, drink a, a fifth of bourbon every morning, you got to really work on your relationships. If you have a great relationship with your wife, if you have a great relationship with your kids, you have like this incredible stable foundation just in terms of back to entrepreneurship and the competitive edge. If you have that stuff, Hardy, you, you have an unbeatable support system. You have someone who gives you great advice. You have non-drama relationships. Think of how much time people have burned up on, on crazy bipolar drama from people they're dating. It's exhausting, right? Have that stability. You'll have a much better career. You'll live longer. You'll be happier. And the second half of your life where you can't draw people into you by being some uber hottie with a, with a Maserati, you'll actually have quality relationships. And that's my big sort of life advice for the young from <laughs> middle age. <laughs> I, I really, really, really appreciate and love your advice. I think it's amazing and 
people really should focus on this long-term relationship. Um, just a part of what we're chasing the hot girls. It's kind of hard to follow your advice, but um, <laughs> oh, it is. Just it, it, it absolutely is. Uh, I, I've got a phrase on the show um, called dicknapped, which is when your penis is making your decisions for you. So you can get kidnapped by the mafia, but you can get dicknapped by your own underpants. And uh, it's very, very important to, to avoid that. That is a divining uh, rod that will, will lead you to a very, very bad place in general. <laughs> so um, before I ask, at the end of this conversation, like five very, very short questions. Yes. Um, could you please tell everybody where can they uh, find you on the social web, connect with you, buy your books, and uh, sure. so on. So, yeah, freedomainradio.com. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-M-A-I-N. So freedomainradio.com. You can do youtube.com forward slash freedomainradio. And uh, on my website, this I'm on Gab, I'm on BitChute, I'm on uh, Parler, I'm on Twitter. Twitter is at Stefan Molyneux, S-T-E-F-A-N. M O L Y N E U X. I'm sorry for the not John Smith name. Uh, I feel like I should have like half my name is like the African clicking language. I don't even know how people are going to be able to type it out, but I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. So yeah, freedomainradio.com is the best place to go. <laughs> Guys, make sure to follow us, uh, Stefan. So um, the first out of the five question is, um, what are the three books that had the greatest influence on your life? The three books that had the greatest influence on my life. I, I know it's kind of a tough question, but... Um... Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's perfectly fine. I just, it, it changes. Well, so the first book that really got me interested in philosophy was... I read Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, mm. which is a very deep and powerful book. And it's one of these classics that people mistake. Oh, it's going to be like reading Shakespeare and like get a good translation... I read that book in 16 hours straight. I couldn't even go to sleep because it's such a powerful book on, on self-knowledge and, and the evils of ideology. I was very, very drawn into that book. Uh, that's an amazing book. Uh, Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead uh, and Atlas Shrugged were also very powerful for me. I know that that's my three, but uh, Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle was also uh, uh, one heck of an eye-opener and just about anything by Charles Dickens. Okay, so that's, that's cheating with some more. <laughs> <laughs> So um, the second question is, uh, what are the uh, three movies that you have enjoyed the most? My favorite movie is an old Merchant Ivory production of an E.M. Forster novel, and it's called Room with a View. Mm. Uh, that is an amazing movie, uh, just in terms, it's, it's beautifully acted, it's incredibly shot, and uh, it's got a wonderful story arc, and the, ah, it, it's just an amazing movie, so... I would what, recommend that. What was that. the name again? Uh, it's called Room with a View. Ah, okay. Um, <clears throat> the second, which is a bit of a genre shift, is Fight Club. <laughs> so when I was, when I was going oh, through a huge amount of life changes and was really confronting some dysfunctional relationships in my life, I had terrible insomnia that lasted for over a year. And in the middle of that insomnia, I went to go and see the, the movie Fight Club where the guy's battling insomnia. And um, that movie, I must, I've, I've got a whole review of it with an English professor on my channel. Uh, but yeah, the movie, movie Fight Club was, was just an <laughs> incredibly uh, deep and powerful movie for me. Third. A third one? Uh, I think it would be my daughter's favorite movie from when she was younger, which was Finding Nemo, which is just a delightful movie that's almost perfectly told as a story. I got it. So the third out of the five question is, um, what is the most useful product or service that you have bought in recent memory? Huh, most useful product or service? 
I think that um, I, I'm sort of pleased with the studio upgrade. Before I was, uh, it was a little bit more amateur-like, so I, I hired some guys to come in and sort of revamp the whole studio, and uh, I think that was uh, uh, my favorite. It's a lot easier to produce shows now than it used to be, and I think they look better. Okay. So um, the fourth question is, um, what are the most important realizations you've had in the last couple of years? And we had some guests who shared something deeply personal about business, family, health. Speak to anything you feel comfortable sharing with us today. I think that the most important realization, Hardy, is that the media and our culture as a whole This is why I sort of talked earlier about, you know, get your family solid, get your tribe, be a dad, be a mom. They tempt us with, you know, shallow sexuality and materialism and this empty consumption. And one of the reasons they do that is once you have a child and you become a father or a mother, you care a lot more about the direction of the world. You, you get this zoom view, you know, like instead of looking at things like this, you're like, you get the zoom view. You know, when you're young, you say, okay, what's my weekend going to look like? You know, <laughs> am I going to have a cool weekend, right? But when you, you get married, you have kids, you start to think, okay, what's the world going to look like in 50 years? And so I think that the powers that be have a very strong incentive to keep us away from having kids so that we don't have enough of an incentive to fight the negative directions the world can be heading in. So I think that's something that's really important. I can convince, I can try and convince people to you know, have moral courage and be good and stand up to evil and, and, and fight for truth and virtue and all that. And that's all great, you know, and people are like, yeah, hey, the Simpsons aren't, right? So they just kind of drift <laughs> off. And so I can yeah. try and convince them of all of that, but if I can convince them to have kids, that's going to happen anyway. And so uh, I think that we're kind of, in a sense, sterilized by, you know, by pornography, by by. Um, all of these depictions about how bad and boring parenting is and how bratty kids are and how unhappy parents are and all of that. We kind of have this propaganda to keep us away from having kids so that we keep our time preferences very short and short time preferences work very well to the escalation of uh, unjust power over us. Mm, love your thoughts. So um, the last question for today is, Stefan, um, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would say, great job at getting through your childhood, keeping the joy of your optimism and happiness intact. You know, when I was a kid, there used to be these egg races where you'd, you'd I don't know if you've ever played them, like you get a spoon, you get an egg, and you got to run uh, and, and not drop the egg. Well, the egg was like my future happiness, and the running race was my childhood, and I was being shelled at the same time. So, so for me, I would say, you know, great, great job doing that. Now, start to think more sensibly and more quickly about what kind of life you want. I was very lucky. I'll tell you this, Artie, man. I was incredibly lucky in that I found a great woman in my 30s. I mean, that's, that's like saying, oh, I don't need to save for my retirement because I'm just going to play the lottery. You know, like one in a million guys is, is going to win the lottery and say, woohoo, I can't believe you suckers actually saved for your retirement, right? So I was incredibly lucky in finding a great woman in my 30s. And that's saying just have fun in your 20s and you'll find a great woman in your 30s is, again, like the guy saying, I won the lottery, so why would you bother saving any money? Or mm -hmm. even better yet, go into debt because you can pay it off with your lottery winnings, right? 
So I would say to myself, um, just because you had a bad childhood, don't treat your 20s in such an immature way, right? Like, it, it's tough to have to grow up when you've had it harsh, but you have to do it faster because the fact that I happened to dodge the bullet of solitude in my 30s was more luck than anything else. So, yeah, I would say good job, um, but now you can't have a happy childhood in your 20s uh, because it'll just mean your 30s and 40s will probably, and thereon will probably be pretty bad. Uh, Stefan, um, I think this episode was loaded with goodness. Um, <laughs> I, I, I love talking to you today. I think it was amazing. Um, thank you very, very much for being on the podcast. Well, thank you as well. And for uh, those, my friend, who are going to be listening to this on my channel, where can they get your material? Um, they can find me everywhere. Just uh, type in, in at Twitter, Hardy Harbourland, uh, Hardy Harbourland, and they find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, um, YouTube, uh, Spotify, iTunes, everywhere. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I'll put links to the show I publish. I really, really appreciate your time. Time today. It was a great pleasure. <laughs> Talk soon. Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world. And also, equally importantly, go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show, to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support, my friends. freedomain.com forward slash donate.